Welcome to Dr. Thoughts, a smart, driven, and fabulous podcast by Drs. Ryan LaValle and Kalia Johnson, where sometimes it's about occupation and sometimes it's just sassy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Dr. Thoughts. It's everybody's favorite academic mama, Dr. Kalia Johnson, and I am here with everybody's favorite political OT, Dr. Ryan LaValle. What's up, my friend? Woo! I'm so excited. I have just been wanting to chat with you for so long because we I feel like we just haven't had the time or the energy, and it's so wonderful just to hang with you. But I do have a big question to start oh, this episode. Okay. How do you feel about my mustache? Oh, my mustache. Look, I, I am low-key staring at it. I like it. I think you should keep it uh, for a long while. I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna say a little while. I'll keep it a long while. I like it. It's very retro, very vintage. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm trying it out, y'all. I have this, it's not, what, is this a handlebar mustache? I don't know what kind of mustache this is, but for the first time in my life, I have a full, only mustache and I mean it's trending I think in the gay community right now I don't know who started the trend but I'm just gonna roll with it and see but everyone I've talked to is like that is meant for you that that is like your face has been missing that this this whole time it's (laughs) fun it looks good I did not expect to get this much love for the stash Well, it's well-deserved love. It looks good. I like it. I just, I need you to like- I do want Mecca's opinion. So I'm going to have to message her. (laughs) Yes, yes. Listen, we we get Mecca's opinion for a lot of things, right? Our fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Interprofessional- counseling. (laughs) Yes, couples counseling, interprofessional relationships. Mecca, she just needs to to be our our, like repeat guest all the time. Yes, all the time. So thank you. Dr. Thoughts therapist. (laughs) Our own resident Dr. Phil, but way better and cool. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Wait, like 6,000 bazillion times better than than Dr. Phil. Well, he doesn't even, I feel like he doesn't even have a degree. Anyways. So (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole different episode where we just drag Dr. Phil for an hour. Oh, um, man. Today we're talking not about Dr. Phil, but um, the politics of, of OT and representation and sparked by a particular experience, I think, that Dr. Kalia Johnson just recently had. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Kalia? Sure, yeah. Speaking about power in the profession and, and politicking, um, I have recently returned home from attending the OT Summit of Scholars. It's... Um, a sort of research-based conference that's been happening for about 10 years that got started by um, a group of, you know, well-funded occupational therapy researchers and occupational scientists from, you know, some of our major research-intensive universities that house OT programs and schools of medicine and that sort of thing. But um, anyway, I along with several other attendees took note (laughs) of a um, open plenary PowerPoint that went on to describe the sort of heavy hitters, if you will, those who have um, 
been, you know, outstanding researchers in the profession, people who've made a, a difference in sort of how we practice, how we think about occupation, and uh, just been described as the sort of mothers and fathers of, of science of occupation, right? But the, the slide highlighted um, like 90, 99% of the faces on there were white women, right? There were a couple white men sprinkled through there. Um, and I just couldn't help but wonder a number of things. It's like, one, how is it 2022? We've had, you know, session upon session about diversity and representation and inclus inclusivity in the profession. And we're still showing PowerPoint slides with just white faces, right? Um, you have emerging scientists, you know, junior researchers like myself in the room and, you know, I'm sorry, but a lot of the people that I look up to are other OTs of color, you know, Asian OTs and indigenous OTs and other folks who are doing incredible work um, that, again, hardly get recognized for their contributions to the field. But I think the thing that really bothered a few of us the most is that you have a summer scientist institute that, that is, um, that convenes in conjunction with OT Summit that are our students, occupational therapy students that are from, um, you know, universities that aren't housed in, you know, R1s and that, um, or OT programs, I should say, that aren't housed in R1s that, you know, don't have strong um, sort of research backgrounds. Like universities just aren't set up that way, right? So it's meant to give these students um, sort of research intensive opportunities, help get, you know, introduce them to what a career in science can be like as an occupational therapy practitioner, so on and so forth. So these are, you know, students from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, I mean, racial and ethnic, you know, backgrounds, gender backgrounds, um, students with disabilities, all sorts of things, right? They don't have anybody on those slides that look like them. Right, so what, what are the implicit messages it sends when we over and over again continue to represent OT in a way that, that says, these are the people who are great. Mm -hmm. You can aspire to be like them, but the people who we praise don't look like you, may not ever look like you. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And just thinking about the fact that Dr. Layla Lorenz was a person who was supposed to be given the clothes, or she did, not supposed to be, she did, the clothes and remarks for this event. And her face wasn't even included among <laughs> those that they were talking about. I was like, make it make sense, folks. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the rest of the event, event, thankfully, was, you know, um, not necessarily what I experienced in that that opening um, plenary, but it just it it left it left um, a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. It's like, how are we still doing this, especially when we are in a environment where we are supposed to be welcoming in or ushering in, you know, emerging scientists, students who want to be scientists. Um, and, you know, just again, perpetuating the same old, same old, that this is what OT is. This is, these are the people who, um, are the ones that we recognize as making a difference and will, 
continue to do so apparently because here we are still doing it. What'd you say, OT so white? <laughs> yes, hashtag OT so white. Um, for those who don't know the, the you know, reference to Oscar so white that happened a few years back, um, I actually text Ryan about it <laughs> during the event. I was like, are we kidding? Here, it's like, I mean, you had AOTF repre uh, uh, representation there from, uh, you know, folks who are not white that are sitting in that room that are also, you know, prolific scientists. I'm just like, of all the people to think about. And side note, a lot of those people they had on the slide are retired. Like, can we can we include some some folks that are still getting up and going to work every day? Not that we shouldn't. <laughs> okay. Not, yeah, you know, not that. Hey, people have played their dues. Enjoy your retirement. But I want to see I want to see the active folks. You know, I've right. been reading about all of these other names literally since I started OT school back in 2002. Like, can yeah. we can we do better? Yeah, I think it's interesting that particularly OT Summit, I remember when I first, um, I've been to this once, and um, what's interesting is it's it's very based on funding. Like, you can't present there unless the, the research that you are presenting is funded by a grant of some kind, right. you know, and so in that way, it is, it's meant to be focused on research, it's meant to be focused on, like, big research, funded research, um, you know, but at the same time, it really sends a signal of like this is the type of thing that we value is this big funded research mm -hmm. um and so some people might say you know there's two responses i think well not two there's a lot probably of dumb responses but two <laughs> responses that could <laughs> happen you know to what you're talking about Kalia, is like you know people might say okay yeah maybe those people just didn't get the funding you know and that's why in the past but that's just not true it's just there there are people who have done great work there are people who've gotten major funding to do research that very well could have been up on that slide and make absolute sense there's mm -hmm. people with disabilities who have done amazing ot research that that weren't represented you know so i think that's the first thing the second thing is you know, there's still probably some prejudice around who gets that funding. We know oh, that, you know, white, cis, straight men tend to get more funding in research. I feel like I just saw a tweet that was like a study about this. <laughs> oh, the NIH um, has done their own about that. About yeah, who, you who know, and so even if, even if they're like, if, if in the case that there weren't any of these researchers, which there are, it still is a problem that that funding is still going to the same people. Um, and, and so it's like, I don't know, that's almost this idolization of this way of being. Of, and it goes back to me, to our history of connecting to the American Medical Association and the biomedicalization of occupational therapy and the way that we like value doing what we do. And it's like, oh, biomedical research is the place that power sits in our system. So let's chase it. Let's go after it. And then yeah. the people who are able to do that best and continue to reinforce those problematic structures are the ones that we put up on a slide to make sure everyone sees this is the way you do the work. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so frustrating for a variety of reasons, but it's, it's just so repetitive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, if I might add, it's, it's also a bit lazy. <laughs> um, because <laughs> even, 
even if we consider, right, the big funding, right? If you're thinking about NIH, Nidler, um, some of your bigger foundations, Robert Wood Johnson, Kaiser, Ford, um, William T. Grant, just a cursory look, you can find other OTs who are doing like non-biomedical research that is also well-funded you know, mm-hmm. and just to sort of continue to idolize, because essentially that's what it is, right? It's like, yeah, they value a certain thing, but we're also idolizing particular people. Um, but again, the implicit messages about about value, right? And while right. somebody like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to call it names, but, <laughs> you right. know, somebody who's, whose work is funded by the Kaiser Foundation, which they give millions and millions of dollars towards all kinds of stuff, um, is getting missed, mm-hmm. you know, because we're still stuck on the well elderly study. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the tea, the tea <laughs> is hot. <laughs> yeah, no, and Real I just want to that front. <laughs> listen, because there's and and it and it comes up. Speaking of Twitter, it comes up every now and then when somebody tweets and asks about you know OT research that has really made a difference um, or been recognized by the medical community and somebody is like, please cite something besides the world elderly study. Right. <laughs> you know, right. and I'm like, point, point. Well, and also whose ruler, you know, whose ruler are we using? The people who historically have excluded the people that we're talking about from OT, you know, the, that's the ruler that OT wasn't uh, welcoming these diverse groups until like late in the 1900s (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know like that's that's a reality that I think a lot of OTs don't realize is that the the measures that we are using to idolize the researchers and the practitioners are measures that were based in very problematic cultural norms around OT and the profession you know Mm -hmm. and and it's time to say yes those people did do work some of them you know, we probably don't need to be so <laughs> idolizing of so, especially some of those founders. Um, uh, yes. You no, know, but at the same time, this is the same issue that, like, at large, our country, I think, is going through. In that, there's always this tension of like, oh, don't hate on the U.S. or don't hate on our history. You know, we have to be patriotic, and it's like, no, we have to be realistic and we need to be critical enough of our own selves and our in our community to make it grow mm-hmm. and that's what I think we're so afraid to do because everybody else is so afraid about like everybody else is so not aware of what OT is we like can't we can't be sitting here critiquing it because then everyone's like what well, we don't even know what you're what you are so let alone understand <laughs> the critiques that you're making of yourself um, and it's like I'm tired of that I'm tired of us feeling so insecure in our profession that we have to idolize our founders and and the people who have historically just in honesty bowed down to these power structures of um, research or or even practice or the the medical structures that are out there um, and haven't stuck to occupation and everyday living and and the power of like everyday life in in a way that's I don't know. Yeah, I, I think mean that's problematic in some ways too. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think what is, what is interesting about the profession, though, is it. You know, we already did an episode about death to imposter syndrome, but it's almost like we have a little bit of 
imposter syndrome, mm. right? Because we we do lots of fabulous advocacy. You know, it's like our dues goes towards this this work, and we have seen the fruits of our labor really benefit in OT some ways. Um, in some ways, you know, things just don't you know turn out the way that we had hoped, particularly around reimbursement and that sort of thing. But we have definitely, I think, found our groove in leveraging advocacy. One, you know, the profession is inherently um, um, uh, adv uh, advocate oriented, advocacy oriented. I'm not even sure exactly how I want to say that, but yeah. <laughs> um, because we have to do that work for for the people that we work with, right? Individuals mm -hmm. and, and the populations. But speaking on a, a political, like actual political party sort of thing, um, with how the profession is situated within CMS or NIH for that matter, or anything that helps drive. Uh, money towards the profession in ways that benefits um, the clients that we work with. It's like, we we know how to do that. So why are we sort of talking out of both sides of our mouth? Like, oh, well, we still have to define OT. We have to define occupation. We have to reclaim this. We have to do that. But we're out here also on the front lines stumping um, and knocking on doors, making sure we have what we need. So it's like, can we own that identity? Uh as you know embodied advocates or you know frontline soldiers whatever we want to call ourselves <laughs> um to really not just move our own profession forward but really change how healthcare uh functions in this country i really want to see us take take that up and really own it mm -hmm. the other stuff not let it fall by the wayside but it's it's fodder in the background yeah. I think it's, it's stuff that we're going to continue to grapple with. Um, and I also want other people to understand, like, not only OTs have this issue, like you see the same thing in nursing with their relationship to, to medicine, physical therapy goes through it as well. Although we, we do tend to try to follow what they do as well, because they, they have learned how to, how to hone power in the medical community too. Um, this is not unique to us. But um, I think what might be unique to us is one, the, the number of settings that we can get into and how we, um, I think, leverage that as well with um, our ability to advocate as well as we have. We can really, really shape some things differently. I think we just need to, to own it. We gotta be, we gotta, we gotta be, uh, I almost said grown women about it because we are primarily women, but we're not. <laughs> Honestly, we, we just got to be kings and queens about it or something. Yeah. <laughs> Royalty. We have to be Royalty. Royalty. Yeah, I mean, it's like integrating, like, I, I don't know, I, I think about, like, we put up this face, we put up this, this sort of representation of us being a holistic profession that looks at the whole person, the whole situation, the whole of everyday life, and and then we go in and it's like, well, I'm just going to bend to this way of doing practice, you know, and, and to, I mean, honestly, it's hard to challenge those huge systems. Um, but I think that we underestimate the influence and power that we as a group of professionals as OT could really use, um, because it's like we're playing the game that was given us to play. And that structure and that game is antithetical to the, the principles and beliefs of occupation, like in my humble opinion, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> such a big statement, I guess. Um, but like, you know, we, we can't 
our way of, uh, if we think about occupation, we think about everyday life, particularly now that we are having sort of this, um, I won't call it a revolution, uh, maybe a little bit of a revolution, but in the sense of we are reimagining even the word occupation through these different globalizing, decolonializing, sort of all these ways that we're challenging the problematic garden that we grew this idea of occupation in. Um, and it's like, now that we're reimagining, we're realizing that a lot of what we hold is absolutely in contradiction to this reductionistic biomedical sort of um, recipe based assembly line, you know, health approach. And, and it's like, we, we can't do that anymore, but we have yet to grab the bull by the horns and actually say, we're not gonna do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so we keep putting up the face, but behind the scenes, our advocacy and our politics are very much still playing the game. And, and it's like, we, we aren't actually making, um, I mean, I don't know. I think it's very theoretical right now and, mm -hmm. and we have to bring it into the practical. I, I would love to see more concrete ways that we're shifting power both within the profession and outside the profession um, in ways that are are more radical and based in occupation and and yeah. everyday life you know yeah well let's let's go there i think we can start with the with the outside of the profession right you know one of the things that came to mind immediately while you were speaking is that people people want to be paid mm -hmm. <laughs> they want to make sure they have steady checks they want their checks to be good um, so while, you know, in many ways we are challenging systems like CMS, um, and all of the major insurance companies, people don't want to mess with their money, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I, I, I get that. That is, that is very, that is very real. Um, but at, at some point though, right, we have to either stand firm <laughs> about what it is that we wanna do. And like you said, in that strength and numbers thing, I mean, this is something that, gosh, I mean, imagine if occupational therapy, speech language pathology, physical therapy, rehab counseling, um, psychology even, psychiatry even, mm -hmm. um, really came together um, to, to, to advocate for changes in the system so that monies are really put towards preventive care, um, community-based care, things that make sense for people to thrive in their communities. Mm -hmm. um, without all of the territory politicking. Right, but that's the thing, <laughs> is that's as soon as, because they've gotten us fighting each other instead of working together, which is the typical way that, you know, those Everybody has always prevented social change. Right, right, right. Um, but it, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe, may, maybe I'm dreaming. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't think you're dreaming. I think it's real. Like we need to be having more conversations across professions. We need to be challenging. Like I mean, we know internationally that there are other health systems that are working much better and more affordably and more efficiently than the U.S.'s health system. But as long as we are like, well, I'm still getting my check, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then it, I think that's the challenge is like, we have to think of ways, especially like when I think of AOTA and, and other, you know, associations or people who are really advocating for OT, we have to advocate for, or even like ACOAT standards. Um, you know, I want standards that teach students 
how to run their own business, you know, or how to be a consultant or how to um, like really understand what are the tools in your tool belt that you are taking into whatever position you take, even if it's not called an occupational therapist. And people argue with me, like, you can't get paid the same amount. I just found a job um, and uh, any community oriented OTs out there who want to apply for this job and move to Chapel Hill and hang out with us. Let me know. It's publicly available. Um, the Chapel Hill um, City is they're doing this community connection position. It's a great salary. Um, it's like a community connector, a, a program manager. Um, it's really about housing and community engagement. And I think it would be amazing for a community oriented OT to be in that position. And it is a decent salary. The salary is like it's a pretty wide range. Um, but it's posted as like 69 to like 93. <laughs> Ooh, that's quite a range. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you can argue within that, but I mean, it's not a bad salary and it's very much within the, the realm of an entry level OT, maybe even, you know, a more experienced OT in certain settings. Right. So I don't know. I just don't see AOTA or even state associations really challenging programs and students and practitioners to think about what are the skills that I, I can go into that position and be, yeah, have that title, but say, I was trained as an occupational therapist. Here are the tools that I bring um, into this. But it's like, no, all of our advocacy is like therapy caps and like making sure that CMS is, is covering this, that, and the other PAM or something, you know, I don't know. I clearly, I don't work in that area. So <laughs> people are probably like, he just needs to shut his mouth because he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but I don't know. It's just frustrating to see like us put all of our eggs into one biomedical basket. And, and I'd like us to diversify our uh, revenue streams a little bit yeah. Yeah. Um, as a profession. I think part of the, the issue with that is we have to be a little more creative and open-minded, speaking of, of power sharing, of what is happening in our OT academic programs. Mm. Now, you and I are academicians. We, we, we know that game. Um, you know, certain, certain credentials have certain power, right? But I think for students to really, unless, you know, us PhD carrying folks have done this sort of work in our, in our personal practice and continue to do it while we are in the classroom, we need to get out of the way and let folks who are in the field doing this kind of thing, folks who are OT entrepreneurs, really teach our students the craft. Yeah. You know, like I am not going to teach not one module on OT entrepreneurship. I have no business doing it. I will, I hope nobody ever approaches me about doing it because I will refuse and refuse and refuse. <laughs> I don't have any business doing that. But we know dozens of folks, right, who work in non-traditional settings, who are OT entrepreneurs, who are incredible instructors that could, could put together content for our students to learn, um, to even do field works around this, right? But I think sometimes in education, right, we have a particular model that we, part of that, you know, we know is, is, in, in fault of ACOAT, but certain things that we must follow in how we teach, but some of it falls short in, in how students really need to be prepared to go into either a, the, a medicalized um, uh, workforce or one that is economically global and more diverse than what we actually 
Um, And so either academic programs need to advocate for their own like additional funds to hire folks as, well, I won't even say adjuncts because the adjunct pay is shitty, Um, but (laughs) you know, money for people to to come in and teach part-time. or if we want to even go a step further, really advocate about a different sort of adjuncting model as well. But, yeah. you know, people don't need to be, we don't need to be PhDs to teach that. You know, you need to be good OTs who understand the system and can yeah. provide structured learning around it for, for students. Yeah, and I feel like I, at least in the Instagram world, or at least like some of the conference, like, I don't know, conferences, but some of the, the gatherings or summit things that I've seen, like, so many of these these entrepreneurial OTs are OTs of color, are disabled OTs who have found being excluded from the traditional settings or straight up the toxicity of the profession in its traditional spaces to just force them into this other realm of entrepreneurial like ship. And that has been such a like, it's, it's like a bittersweet reality in a lot of ways because they are leaders. Like I think about Tamiko Faison, who is just mm-hmm. an absolute leader in, in entrepreneurship in OT and has done so many different things that I lose count. Um, but, and I don't know her reasoning for doing that, but I, I think she's just an amazing businesswoman. But I can just, I've heard so many stories of people like I couldn't do it anymore or they wouldn't give me that job because I have a disability or something like that. And then they go find their own job and they make their own job. Um, and so mm-hmm. we need to pull on those. And those are the people who need to be on the slideshows. <laughs> you know, those are the people who we need to be highlighting, not as, you know, just, just about research. Like research isn't the only way to be successful in OT, but leaders and, and not that OT summit, obviously that is about research. So they want to highlight researchers. That's a whole different story. But you know, I think that that is something that we often feel short of is that it's like, where where are we lifting these people who are doing this sort of work besides mm-hmm. maybe just like one award at a conference a year mm-hmm. or something? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're out there like hustling. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, they're Absolutely. hustling and, and we need to support them just as we as much as we support the, the sniff OT who is, is trying to get that paycheck as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's <laughs> a laugh because now I'm, I'm just sort of running all sorts of plenary session PowerPoints in my mind as far as like who's whose work is highlighted, who's celebrated, um, and who's not, right? And you mentioned, you know, all of the these uh, conferences we've had, particularly during the pandemic, that um, have been have been run by OTs with disabilities and, and uh, racially minoritized OTs that have been phenomenal. The topics have been incredible, um, you know, things where you, and you're still getting contact hours for, you know, for anybody that's like, oh, well, they're doing these things, but can you get contact hours? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, I got about 17 hours through a bunch of those um, over this past year, but it's, yeah, it's just a different way of uh, thinking about representation, thinking about power sharing and power differentials. Um, in relation to how we get paid, <laughs> too, mm-hmm. right, yeah. right, yeah. But speaking of sort of changing these things, 
like within the profession. I don't think you touched on um, thinking about OT programs um, for a little bit, but I'm also thinking about just inside OT um, in general. Um, you know, in our conversation about my experience of OT Summit. And side note, y'all, like this was not my first OT Summit. I've been a, this is my fourth OT Summit. So <laughs> I, uh, I think I think I have the, the flavor of the conference down now. Um, you know what, another side, like if we had to give OT Summit a Kool-Aid flavor, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> OT Summit, let's give all the conferences the Kool-Aid flavor. Um, let's see. Well, OT Summit, I've only been once, once too, so I, I can't necessarily, um, I can't necessarily say what I would yeah. say the Kool-Aid flavor would be. Um, I think it would have to be like orange or something. Like it's something that's very specific. You got to be in the mood for it. Um, like it's not the thing that you would pick first, but if it's cold, you're going to drink it. Like AOTA would be cherry, right? That's the thing everybody likes. It's the biggest conference you go to. It is readily available. Um, you know, every everybody knows it. SSO would be like blueberry because it's like you only find it in certain stores. Only people, certain people, know about it. <laughs> <laughs> I I do not know this much about Kool Aid, Kool Aid. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about Gatorade maybe, um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I don't, I don't have that knowledge base. <laughs> if I really wanted to go country on y'all, we could say, you know, the, the ice pops that we would eat growing up, but if those, you don't even call them by the flavor, you just call them by the color. Yes, that's true. No, I know those, that's for sure. Oh, I love the green one. So oh, good. green. See, I green. Love that, that would be an SSO ice pop. Yeah. Green. <laughs> okay, all of that aside, I don't know what made me feel like, oh, Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> I almost forgot what I was talking about. Oh, <laughs> OT Summit and just experiences and all that within the profession. We were talking about representation, all these other things. But I guess to, to bring it back to Ann Wilcock for a little bit, like it really makes me think about the doing, being, belonging, becoming. Mm-hmm. And sort of... Um, you know, how I'm positioned in the profession as, you know, a Black female practitioner and, you know, scientist, um, the sort of work that I'm doing, the type of, um, like, how my work is sort of situated in the profession, but also outside of the profession, you know, how, how much of me and who I am and what I bring, like, how, how, how do I belong to this? Mm. You know, how do I belong to academic programs? How do I belong to occupational therapy profession in general? Like, how do I belong in medicine even? And, you know, how, how does that then influence my becoming the, the fullness of Kalia, the scientist, I guess? Um, and then how I, and then, and, and then in turn, how I further sort of see myself belonging in and of OT. Um, I don't know, not, I guess to get to, to, I guess, academic, but also existential about it, but it's, 
it, it does weigh, I think, on you differently when you think about power and representation and how much minoritized and disabled, um, queer even, um, and all of the others or marginalized identities I can, that we can name, how much we give to OT, mm-hmm. right? And then to feel like OT doesn't love you back. <laughs> um, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's so interesting to me because we see that all the time where we have students uh, or pre-OT students or, you know, even practitioners who are just embracing with all of their heart occupational therapy and just was like yelling it from the mountaintops and, and really trying to live out an ideal sort of OT that hopefully has evolved since, you know, the 1917 year um (laughs) but then it's just like they they burn out or or they don't see themselves or they don't seem um they don't feel uh lifted or celebrated in those ways and but it's like a stone that's such activism in in its core right is that to believe in something so much that you are willing to struggle with belonging to it like to you are embracing it without it embracing you. And, and that's, a, that's a really one-sided relationship, um, you know, but so many people are, are living that relationship with OT right now um, mm-hmm. because of the power differentials and because of the, the lack of power of those populations um, within leadership or within OT programs. Um, and, you know, for when we talk about inclusivity and power sharing, it has to be a power sharing that is real. It can't just be on the face. Um, and it can't even just be like, well, we have, there's only eight, there's what, 16% um, Black people in the United States, and we have 16% OTs. That's not what we're talking about when it comes to right. power sharing, you know, right. it shouldn't even be 16% of our board. It should be like, at this point, I'm just like, let the Black women leave. <laughs> listen we tired like that's power sharing at this point you know Mm -hmm. it's power reparations it's power sharing like let the queer trans you know black ot's like lead and get pay them a lot yeah yeah which Um, which comes back to sort of living in the truth of taking up decoloniality right uh too you know we've had this oh gosh in the last couple of years I can't tell you how many book proposals I've been approached with in writing chapters about something related to coloniality or decoloniality and Mm. how it's taken up in the profession. But what I need OTs to understand, even those who have approached me about it, and we've had these side conversations, is that to, we can't, we can't just intellectualize this stuff, right? When you, if you really want to decolonize the profession, right, you really have to understand coloniality of power and even you know, power sharing can't, it has to go beyond to even just sort of putting black and disabled folk um, in power, indigenous OTs in power. You really have to dismantle the structures that allow these particular pedagogies and epistemologies to exist, right? And even minoritized folks, we have been socialized to take these things up and perpetuate it too. So if you are decolonizing, you've got to decolonize that thing all the way. Yeah. <laughs> all the way look I'm not we're, we're not even gonna use real big fancy terms with that you just gotta do that thing all the way yeah 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that has to be the ideal, right? I see all these classes that are like decolonizing methodologies. And I'm like, okay, so you're doing ethnography or you're doing like even like quantitative decolonized methodology, but you're still applying for the same structures, the same grants, the same funding that's going to ask you to do the same work, do the same analyses. And you're same, still functioning within the system and focusing on the same populations in the same way that has always been done. But you're reflecting in journals while you do it. So that's decolonization. That, that counts. That's all you have to do. You yeah. know, it's like you can't you can't half-ass decolonization, right? Not it's like at you all. have to, well, and it's obviously like we can't achieve it right now, obviously. It's like, but you have your goal, your lighthouse that your your ends in view, if we want to do it, use a doing term, I love is, <laughs> has to be a full decolonization, you know, mm -hmm. and a full reconstruction of our society systems and, and mm -hmm. profession. And that has to be the goal. And you can't let up until you get to that goal you obviously need to take breaks and have like you know self-care and that sort of thing and and lift each other up but it's not done you you don't you don't you can't ever say i used a decolonizing method mm -hmm. uh, or a decolonized method maybe um because we're we're here we're in a colonized space we're in in a racist profession that we have to unpack and and challenge at every turn our core as a profession is mm -hmm. counter to a lot of these structures that are oppressing people um, and we just are afraid to embrace that in a deeper yeah. way in some well, it requires it requires a certain amount of risk right mm -hmm. risks to the individual risks to the profession um and people like i like i mentioned earlier people just aren't willing to mess with their money um but for those of us who I think engage this work more readily, um, it's not fair essentially that you consistently look to us to put ourselves in, in harm's way, um, both physically sometimes, financially, uh, socially, uh, as it pertains to the profession. Cause you know, Ryan and I have, um, not necessarily been blackballed, but we get excluded from things on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, it, it comes it comes at a, at a at a certain amount of professional risk, right? That, that people have to be willing to take on um, for I think real transformational change, but also for the liberation of people that we claim to care for and want to change systems uh, for and with, because uh, it really should be with. Um, so. So yeah, what? Just, you have to decide I'm what source of risk are you for AOTA reparations. <laughs> AOTA reparations. You know, we just need to have some straight up reparations from from all of our associations, scholarships, you know, that are just straight up. I mean, it was shitty and historically. Like, yeah, people do not like read Black two thousand two. You know, read the history. Paper. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, it was not, I mean, as, and Roxy used the, the dance metaphor. It wasn't a dance. It was an exclusion. It was like, you know, a straight up a problematic structure in place. Um, but the history and the, the reality that, that Dr. Black brought to that, I think was so important at the time. Um, but it's, I think that that's what people, we, you have to risk. You have to risk the power that you have, mm -hmm. um, particularly 
you know, the, the colonizing of the group, um, you know, mm-hmm. the white people, the street people, the, the, there's just this fear of just naming and moving forward and taking real action. And mm-hmm. um, I think we, we have to be brave. We have to build coalition so that when we take risks, we can catch each other and we can and move, make big moves, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's the reality of how you take on the professional risk by creating community and finding people like you and, and other people who are doing this work who can lift each other up and, and what do you say, blow, blow gas in each other or gas each other up or- Gas each other up. <laughs> blow gas, what? <laughs> yeah, that's not a saying I'm, I'm familiar with. <laughs> All right, new new Kool-Aid flavor for Ryan. The 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 no name raggedy one that sits in the back that nobody wants for saying blowing gas. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, we're all just out here blowing gas. Try. Listen, I am not <laughs> trying to make the you. world a better place. Y'all can join like us. Y'all right can now. build community with us. You'll get to laugh, you'll get to cry, you'll get to sweat. It'll be joyful and and wonderful, but we're doing the work, whether you come or not. (laughs) That's right, that's right. So while we have, you know, sort of problematized um, as as critical scholars, we tend to do anyway, we also offered, you know, I believe many ways for us to sort of reframe and rethink how, to move some of our advocacy forward, you know, as individuals, but most importantly, as a profession. So we hope that, you know, in your hearing, you all will mull this over and think about ways that you can do this in your um, respective locales as well, and in ways that you can contribute to um, our national organization is AOTA, NBCOT, ACODE, SSO, and all of the other letters, yeah. <laughs> letters lettered organizations we can name um, because this work is far from over. Yeah, and let us know what flavor Kool-Aid in the, in the comments you think your state association is, <laughs> your state <laughs> conference is. <laughs> yes, I love it. Oh my gosh, we should totally like get somebody to sponsor a table for us at an AOT conference and just do like Kool-Aid flavored things. Like that's our thing. <laughs> I like how you said get somebody to sponsor. <laughs> like we're not doing it. Somebody's yeah. gonna pay us to do this. <laughs> Y'all listen, those those exhibit hall tables are not cheap. No. Okay. Having to have done the contract for SSO for that before now, when I saw mm-hmm. the prices, I was like, what? Yeah, they get a lot of money from those sponsors for sure. Yes, a lot. Where that money goes. Mm. (laughs) Good question. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, (laughs) we leave you with a question um, to go do some research on. Um, But we thank you all so much for listening again. This was another episode of Dr. Thoughts, and we will see you all next time. All right. Bye, y'all.